0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Episode 5 of Money for the Rest of Us, a podcast on money, investing, and economy. I'm your host, David Stein, and today's program is called The True Cost of a Thing. Now, on Episode 4, I made a comment that you might have taken a little out of context. I said... I never shop at a dollar store. And you and you might have thought, geez, Dave, there you are speaking in front of your fancy Blue Yeti Pro microphone staring out at the Tetons and at the colony of ground squirrels that is digging up the front lawn. And you're thinking, this guy thinks he's too good to shop at a dollar store. That's not true. And today's program, we're going to talk why I don't, The sort of the subtitle was why I don't shop at dollar stores. And we're going to connect that To the economy. First, though, I want to introduce a gentleman who also didn't ever shop at dollar stores. There's not just me, there's a man by the name of Henry David Thoreau. He lived in Concord, Massachusetts in the mid 1800s, and he did not, emphatically, I state, he did not shop at dollar stores because, well, if you listen to episode three or two, you learned about inflation, and back then, a dollar was worth a lot. And so most things didn't cost a dollar, so there were no dollar stores. The equivalent today, if we had such a store, would be the everything is a $100 store, and it would be an utter failure. In fact, that brings up an interesting characteristic of dollar stores. Dollar stores used to be stores where they, they shorted, were overstocks and things that didn't work out. In fact, I had a, a marketing professor In graduate school, that loved dollar stores because that was where all the failed products ended up. And he, as a marketer, could go see, well, here's something that didn't work. For example, Reese's Peanut Butter, not peanut butter cups, but Reese's Peanut Butter in in the late 1980s, early 1990s, came out with peanut butter. They tried to mass market it. It failed. Now, I I did look online, and you can, at least on the Hershey store, still buy Reese's Peanut Butter. But dollar stores used to be where you'd find all this mismatched merchandise. That's not what they are today. And and, and a little later in this program, I'll share with you how that has changed and how that impacts the economy and why I don't shop at dollar stores. Now, back to the title of the program, The True Cost of a Thing. The cost of a thing is something that Henry David Thoreau knew very well. And he recognized this principle. Everything has a price, but that price does not always reflect the true cost, both the cost to ourselves as well as the cost to society. In fact, the cost of something can be much greater than the price, and that's something that we want to explore today, and, and we'll explore it particularly through the eyes of Henry David Thoreau. Now, let me tell you a little bit about him. You probably recognize him as the man who wrote Walden. He went and he lived in a cabin. He wanted to live deliberately, and, and in 1845, he went into the woods. We think of it as, as going into the wilderness. In fact, it, it was sort of the suburbs, at least the equivalent of suburbs in the mid-1800s. This was not wilderness. This, this plot of land that he moved to in 1845 was actually owned by his friend and sometimes employer, Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson. And and so, Waldo, Waldo, Emerson, and and so, he went and he lived there for two years. He built the house by hand. He did the gardening by hand, and he he spent a lot of time writing, reflecting on his life. Because one of his big challenges he had, he went to Harvard and he studied philosophy. He studied some mathematics. He studied rhetoric, which I don't think they teach anymore and a little bit of science. But what he didn't learn in college, and he recognized that when he graduated, this is a similar experience that many college graduates have. They they get their degree, and they get out, and they realize they have no idea how they're going to make a living. Well, that's the problem Henry David Thoreau had in 1837. He just didn't know what he wanted to do, because he ultimately wanted to be a poet. And he believed that poets, to be good poets, they had to live life. They had to live deliberately. They had to go out into nature and experience it. In fact, the trees would talk to them, the mountains would talk to them. That's where they would find their true sustenance and their inspiration as a poet. That's what Henry David Thoreau believed. The problem was nobody really liked his writing. He He didn't even become known for his writings after he had passed away, a little bit. It was He was sort of the 19th century equivalent of Internet famous, kind of a small group, Ralph Waldo Emerson and, and, and a couple, I think Nathaniel Hawthorne was kind of in this little group, Margaret Fuller. They were transcendentalists, and I won't even go into what it is other than they believe that, uh, well, frankly, I, I'll put a link in the show notes because I don't remember exactly, but it had something to do with with you, you, there's this other realm, and, and I'm going to say it has something to do with trees talking to you, but it, not quite. But, but ultimately, he had a small group that they would write to. They had this magazine called The Dial, and, and Thoreau had a few contributions to this magazine. But he didn't really know how he was going to make a living. His family had a, a pencil factory. He would work there, but for an aspiring poet... Pencil factories do not provide a whole lot of inspiration. He did start a school with his brother John in Concord. In fact, he took a short leave of absence from Harvard to start the school, and they ran it for three years. Seemed to be doing well, but then John contracted tetanus from shaving. Think about that. You can die from shaving if you don't have your tetanus shot update. So go, boys and girls, make sure you have your tetanus shots. He died. So he went back to, John died. This was very hard on Throw. He went back to school and, and, and studied some more and graduated. He, he actually did work for Ralph Wallo Emerson. He would help him take care of, tutor his kids. He'd work in the yard. But he just would do odd jobs because at the end of the day, there's this principle that, he learned, and this is the this is where we get the title of today's episode. It is, the cost of a thing, this is a quote, quote, the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. So the cost is, how much life am I going to have to give to buy this thing? Now that, that works sort of, mechanically, because when you buy something, if I go out and I buy a new car, which I don't, I drive a used car, but I went out and bought a new car, then think about what, what, what I've given up in terms of how, how long it took me to actually earn the money to buy that, how many hours of laboring away when we buy anything. And so when we buy something, we give up part of our lives, part of our time part of our freedom. In fact, you can actually calculate it in terms of dollars and cents. For example, a dollar invested today that earns 5% annually for 30 years would be worth $4.32. And that's one, one, one way to think about the cost of something when we buy it. It isn't just the price, but it's also the freedom that we gave up to earn the money and our potential freedom, 20 30 years from now, when we ultimately we want to retire. I, I, for example, I'm, I'm retired now, and I retired when I was 46. Now, retirement means, in my mind, it means not feeling, not having to work for money. I still work. I work as hard now as I did when I was working as an investment advisor and money manager. I do a lot of the same things I write, I speak, I just don't get paid for it. That's the beauty of retirement. You can do stuff without getting paid. Now, the way to get retired ultimately is to not spend today. There's always a choice when you have a dollar. I can spend it now, or I can spend it later after it's earned interest and been invested for 20 or 30 years. Thoreau realized that. He realized there was a cost to anything he bought. And the the example he gave, he gave it in a story that he gave of a Native American that saw this rich lawyer that lived in Massachusetts and would just make money by spinning these fancy arguments, arguing cases in court, writing memos, and that, whatever, that's what the, whatever attorneys did in the mid-19th century. And the Native American thought, I am going to make a basket. I weave baskets. I am going to make this basket, and I'm going to earn money just like this attorney, and I'm going to sell him the basket." So the Native American weaved the basket, he went to the attorney, and lo and behold, the attorney didn't buy the basket, didn't want it, it had nothing to do with it. The basket weaver was was a little upset about that because he felt like he had done his part. He weaved the basket, it was the responsibility of the attorney to buy the basket, but the attorney didn't want it. That The the Native American didn't really consider the market for it and whether it was a different color, and and the message that Thoreau took from this was not to make baskets that that the market was willing to buy. His message was Thoreau was a basket weaver. He calls himself a basket weaver. And instead of focusing on how am I going to get people to buy my baskets, I'm going to focus on how to live in a way that I can avoid having to sell my baskets. Now, in Thoreau's case, his baskets was his writing Nobody really cared for his writing, but he wasn't going to give up his dream of being a poet. One reason he went to Walden to live was to learn how to live deliberately, but to learn how to live simply because he recognized the cost of buying anything was ultimately his freedom. And so he learned that at Walden, and, and he learned that he just didn't want He was willing to work in the morning. It wasn't that he was trying to totally ignore money. He realized that necessities were important. In fact, that's why he spent so much time in Walden talking about his house and how he built it, how much it cost and and his furniture and how much it cost to put it in his garden. Money is important. Money is important to live, to have our necessities, to have some comforts. We're not supposed to necessarily live Spartan lives unless we choose to. What Thoreau couldn't get is why we would continue to toil away in order to buy frivolities, to buy things that were luxuries, that the regular stuff worked. Clothes was an example. He couldn't understand why people couldn't walk around with patched clothes if they were still functional. Now, you might not want to do that, but that's fine. But he valued his time so much that he was willing to work in the morning so that he could have his afternoons and evenings free to live and to write and to explore. He loved to travel within the region. He wrote a lot of travelogues. He loved to do science, even though his science wasn't necessarily, as, as an environmentalist, wasn't necessarily received well by the community. But he lived and he recognized the true cost of anything is the freedom that is given up. Now, Why don't I shop at a dollar store? Well, in terms of the dollar store, the cost whenever you buy something is is the cost to society. And that's what's changed with dollar stores. There's always a personal cost when you buy The price, what you pay, there's always the personal cost in terms of the time giving up. But whenever you buy something, there's always a cost to society. Now, that cost might be the resources that were taken out of the ground that might not be there again, or it could be other things that we're going to talk about today. You may or may not have heard before called externalities. And the term externalities means the cost that society bears that, that is not reflected in the price of the good that you buy. And let me give you an example. In, in January this year, I took my fishing mentor. I've been trying to learn to fly fish for a couple years. And, and there's a gentleman who is 71, and his dream that I've been fishing with for a couple years. I am a terrible fisherman. He is a fishing genius, a fishing god. His dream all his life was to go down in the Yucatan and fish for bonefish. And, and the, sort of just right in the bays off the Caribbean. Beautiful place. We went down and we fished there along the, the Caribbean coast. And, and part of our trip was through the Shan Khan biosphere. And this is a beautiful place with one of the longest coral reefs in the world and turquoise water, white sand beaches, but one major problem. The biosphere is Generally unoccupied. In fact, there's a lot of jaguars that, that live there. The neighbors to the place we were staying had lost three or four dogs within the, the like the last year from jaguars eating their dogs. But so but most of the biosphere isn't isn't occupied. And so the beaches aren't like up in Cancun, all tended. When you walk on a beach in the Mexican Yucatan Coast, if it's not tended every day, something happens. As I walked through those beaches in the Shan Khan, they were littered with garbage. Plastic, plastic. Balls, plastic. Buckets, plastic. Oil containers, plastic. Paint containers, plastic. Juice containers. And I thought, where's all this coming from? So I took an inventory. I walked along the beach and I started looking at it. And, 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 you, and you see, and, and it was... Trash, plastic trash, that came from Dominican Republic. It came from Haiti. It came from Colombia. It it came from all these Latin American countries. I, I didn't see anything from Mexico. And it would wash up on the shore, and I started researching. And what happens is many of these... These countries, these Latin American countries, a lot of the waste is not only about thirty five percent of the waste is put in landfills. most of it's just kind of dumped and then when there's floods, it it goes into the streams, it goes into the rivers and then it ultimately into the ocean, and then it would rush up it would it would float up onto the shore. this is literally was a conveyor belt of trash now plastic isn't bad per se, but plastic is known for its permanence and one of the the balance or the things that in this world that are is just disequilibrium would be a word something that's out of balance is we put one-time use products in a container that lasts forever that's permanent now much of plastic is recycled but much is not when you when you go around the world there are places where the way the, the predominant currents go that, that trash just flows up on the beach. That's a problem. That is an example of an externality. Somebody bought a bottle of soda in Haiti, drank it, dumped it. That bottle of soda ended up in the ocean and was littering the beach. I paid the price. I suffered a cost, and all the people along the beaches I visited suffered the cost of that product. Because that manufacturer of the product chose to not put it in glass, but to put it in plastic. Now, back in the mid-'80s in Mexico, you couldn't buy a plastic bottle of soda. Mexicans drink a lot of Coca and a lot of Pepsi, and it it all was done in glass bottles. The way it was done was that the the manufacturer would would take the entire life cycle of the product. They would put the soda in glass bottles, and then they would ship that in, in trucks, The stores would drop it off the stores, and then the the trucks with drivers would pick up the empty bottles, take it back to the factory, wash them, and then you had a complete life cycle. So many products today, there's a price, but the cost is not reflected. There's these externalities, these things that are impacting everyone that aren't necessarily reflected. Now let's go back to the dollar store. The reason I don't shop at dollar stores is another societal cost that's occurring. As I mentioned, dollar stores used to be these fascinating places where you could get odd lots overstocked. In fact, I had a marketing professor that that would love dollar stores because he could find failed merchandise. Reese's Peanut Butter, for example. Not Peanut Butter, cups. Peanut Butter came out in the mid-'80s. didn't work. You can still buy it today, but you could find all these odds and ends. Now, though, dollar stores are filled with merchandise that are manufactured specifically for the dollar store. In fact, they almost have their own brand of dollar store brand. Where's that, where's that product come from? It comes from overseas. It comes from China. And there's the cost that, to society. Not that importing hundreds of billions of dollars is bad. The problem is there's another imbalance that is occurring. In the U.S., we run a trade deficit of $700 billion a year. $500 billion dollars of that, actually about $350 billion of that, is the result of consumer goods. It's consumer goods. It's things you find in the dollar store. Now, if we're buying $350 billion more in consumer goods than we're exporting, then whoever we sold those goods to is, is sitting there with a ton of Of dollars, which they in turn invest back into U.S. Treasuries. We talked about this last episode. How who's on the other side of the seesaw? Well, the the challenge is there's an imbalance there because we are so set on buying cheap goods, many of which are in the dollar store, and I just won't do it. In fact, when I did when I went to the dollar store, I found one item there. That was made in the U.S. It was it was a super glue and, and I bought it. So occasionally I do go into the dollar store. But trade is good, but we should not be trading for the cheapest things. That costs jobs. We need countries to be self-sufficient, be able to make things. And then when we trade, we should trade for the best good. I own some really nice stuff made in China, and I'm glad to own it. But I bought it because it was made well and And i couldn 't necessarily get what what I wanted in the u s but many, many things we can buy in our home countries and not have to trade away for it because there 's always a cost to trading away that to society, and that cost is these major imbalances with trade deficits, because again, if a country runs a trade deficit, that money is going overseas, and then they in turn have to invest. In our debt, China owns $1.2 trillion of U.S. debt, and they do that because we buy a ton of stuff and shop at dollar stores. So that's another example of a consequence of our decisions. There is always the price of things, but there's always the cost. The cost to ourselves is the freedom, our current freedom because we have to spend time earning it, and our future freedom because what we spend today cannot be invested to help us get ultimate freedom when we retire. The other cost is always externality. In an ideal world, all products would reflect all costs. The cost of the environment, the cost of the economy. The products wouldn't cause major imbalances in terms of trade. We would certainly trade, but we would trade for each country's best goods, not their cheapest When we trade for the cheapest goods overseas, it costs jobs. Certainly it creates jobs in other countries, but are those the best jobs? Are those jobs, if you look at what the Chinese are being paid, oftentimes it's not even a living wage because it's a race to the bottom. That's probably enough of a rant today. The episode was the true cost of good, And really the idea of this podcast is not so much to, uh, to rant, but to, to understand the consequences of the choices, both in terms of money and to, and to talk about these connections. Because when we go out and we buy something, often we don't think about, well, as, as I talked about in episode four, what's on the other side of the seesaw, what's driving it. And so that's why. So before we buy, we need to think and, and make choices based on what is the true cost, both to ourselves, and also through society. You can get show notes at the website moneyfortherestofus.net. A better idea, though, is I send out an insider's guide. Before I release each episode of the podcast, you'll get an email with what the show's going to be about, see if you even want to listen to it. It'll have show notes, things that didn't make it into the program, I'll put in there. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. If there's something that you'd like me to cover in this podcast, in a future episode, email me at jd at Currently, the podcast is not available on Apple iTunes. It should be shortly. Hopefully, by the time you listen to this, it will. If it is, then please subscribe. Perhaps you could leave a review. That would be helpful for me. And again, thanks for joining. One other thing before I sign off is please remember that everything I talk about in this program is for general education only. I am not offering specific trading and investment advice. I have not considered your specific risk profile. And so general education, that's the point of it. And I'm glad you could join me with me today. Thanks.